0: Welcome to Short Story Today, where we celebrate short stories and the authors who write them. My name is John Savino, and I'll be your host. This week we celebrate a towering figure in the world of short story writing, Pamela Painter. Her short stories have been published in countless literary magazines and journals, including the Atlantic Monthly and Harper's, as well as in numerous anthologies, such as Sudden Fiction, Flash Fiction, Love Stories for Our Time, and Flash Fiction America. She is the co-author, with Anne Bernays, of the groundbreaking handbook and writing guide, What If? Writing Exercises for Fiction Writers, which has become a standard text for writing programs across the country. She is the author of five short story collections and has received numerous awards for her writing, including the Pushcart Prize and the John Cheever Award for Fiction. She was one of the founding editors of the print literary journal Story Quarterly, and radio listeners have heard her stories presented on National Public Radio. Today I'll be reading her story, Deck, which was first published in five points and later included in her collection Ways to Spend the Night. But first, let's listen to my interview with Pamela which took place on january 26th of this year i'd like to welcome pamela painter to the podcast how are you today pamela i'm good <laughs> i'm so happy to see you um you're talking to us from cambridge right right and you're there because you've been a teacher at emerson college for quite some time right
1: years and years yes yes but no longer you you just oh. re-
0: retired recently from Emerson? So how does that feel?
1: It feels wonderful. I don't know, you know, what does <laughs> one do with time? What do people do who have nine to five jobs? You know, how do they deal with the government? How do they deal with uh, all that stuff?
0: Laundry. So- yeah, well, so now now you can devote more time to to things like like laundry and cooking and you know all that fun stuff, right? <laughs> uh, but you are clearly a really busy person. I mean, I mean, retirement for you obviously does not have the same meaning as it would for a, another person um, uh, who, as you say, worked a nine to five job. This is so exciting for me because this is kind of a departure for the podcast. You know, the tagline for the podcast is here. The best emerging artists of today talk about their stories and their creative processes. Well, you know, you are hardly what anyone would call an emerging author. You have been writing and teaching for a long time. Um, You're one of the most venerated writers and teachers in the world of fiction. Uh, There are hundreds of of writers uh, who who write short stories, who look up to you and have learned a great deal from you over the years. So for me to have you here is a huge honor. And I think it's going to be, you know, a really great treat for the listeners of this podcast to hear you today, because you've done so much. I mean, reading your bio is an education in, in itself. You've had many awards, Pushcart, You've got multiple awards, John Cheever's, um, your stories have been included in numerous anthologies. You've been in the best magazines, the Atlantic Monthly. You've just done so much. So now I don't want you to feel any pressure because of that introduction. <laughs> I hope you did <laughs> But I, I think it's going to be a lot of fun to talk about the many experiences that you've had as a writer, both. You know, in the process of writing, and just you know, in the world of writing, uh, publishing, and just being a figure of your standing too, you've gotten to meet some really amazing people, as you've told me in our initial conversation. I've not let you say a word yet. <laughs> this is terrible. It's supposed to be an interview, and, <laughs> but you're—I needed to do that intro for you because you know you you are unique for for this podcast, and I'm. I want you to maybe uh, start out. I, I mentioned that you know I always let the authors talk about their their beginnings. So, if you wouldn't mind giving us a little bit of your personal history, I think people would love to hear it.
1: Okay. Well, um, <clears throat> I think every writer said this. Saul Bellow. I think every writer is a reader moved to emulation, uh, and I was a reader from a very young age. I was an only child for a while, and. It was like my name was, there's that Pam with her nose in a book. <laughs> it was a derogatory name for me, but I, I was a reader early on. And uh, and then, you know, in <clears throat> oh, late high school, college, I wrote bad poetry. Eventually, I became a high school teacher. Oh, I, I love teaching high school. And um, that, for me, was a fork in the road. It's how I started writing, but I... I guess my third year teaching, I was given a, uh, a, a creative writing class where the students were supposed to write fiction. And I went in and I told the principal, I can't do this. I've never written a story. And he said, do it. There's your classroom. <laughs> uh, so I went, went into the, the students and I said, you know, I don't know very much about this. But um, so everybody's going to write a story tonight. And I'll write a story with you. And they bitched and moaned. They do more than I did, right? So that night I wrote my first story. And and then in that semester, I wrote my second story. And again, MFA programs are so wonderful. Writing groups are so wonderful. They can kind of tell you what to do. So I thought what you did is you wrote a story and you revised it and revised it and revised it. And then you sent it out and you got it published and then you started another story, <laughs> I just didn't know but um but that was a fork in the road and I'm I always ask my students, you know what are the forks in your road? It's so fascinating to know what they are. If I hadn't been given that class, I didn't think I would have been a writer. What would have made me write a story or even try it so I'm really grateful for for that high school class I was given, and uh and I never stopped writing from that, that moment on. I, I loved it.
0: Do you still have that first story or those first stories that you wrote? I do. I
1: do. Yeah.
0: Do you ever share them with people?
1: Oh, you know what? They're all over the place. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, I
0: bet they're, I bet they're pretty wonderful. You know, <laughs> even for first stories, I can imagine they're, they're pretty wonderful.
1: The second story I wrote was listed, I can remember my my mother-in-law and I were in a bookstore and I got, you know, the best American short stories of whatever year it was. And there I was in the back for what, notable short stories. So that was for my second story. Wow. And I read so much, that was my education, really.
0: Hmm. And you were teaching high school in Pittsburgh uh, or, or were you, had you moved to, to another place at that point?
1: At that point, I was teaching in Enfield, New Hampshire.
0: Mm. Uh,
1: my husband hadn't finished Dartmouth, so he went. We moved up there. He had one more year to go to Dartmouth, and I taught high school. And uh, way out, way out in the sticks, I taught my kids how to hitchhike. <laughs> we went and we heard Ann Sexton, Malcolm X, I mean, just incredible writers that were there. Robert Penn Warren, they might have 10 people or 15 people in the audience. And
0: uh... You've lived through some amazing parts of our history. I feel a lot of the people who are listening to this are, they're typically younger than you and I, but there's something to, to have lived through the 60s and part of the 50s, you know, for me, you know, I I don't remember that as well, but... But the 60s, I mean, those years, the, the turbulence and the change in, that took place in, in this country to remember that firsthand. I mean, that that's a pretty remarkable gift, wouldn't you say, especially for, for a writer?
1: Yeah, I, it's true. I, I was living then after after New Hampshire, I was living in Chicago and I did some writing for some brochures for Jesse Jackson
2: mm-hmm.
1: the Rainbow Coalition. Uh, and and then I joined a writing group, and that's when they said, "No, no, no! You just keep writing. You don't do a story and and you know force it into publication." So that was that was really lucky to to find a group of people that you know <laughs> could further educate me.
0: Yeah, yeah, and you know there are so many directions I could take the conversation, of, but I'm I'm thinking yeah. right now just about the publishing world now versus then. What are the big differences that you have observed in the way the publishing industry has changed over the years since you started writing and publishing your work?
1: I'd say that, you know, publishers are no longer doing mid-list books so much. They're the, really the big, big bestsellers, books that make a lot of money. And, but thank God for a lot of of small presses. Mm. There's an enormous number of small presses now, and that is and and they're getting recognition so that is Mm. really wonderful uh engine books was one of my publishers uh university of illinois uh johns hopkins university press so i i really appreciate that that whole field of small publishers
0: and you've worked with university presses uh, clearly you know the John Hopkins you have that association and Carnegie Mellon, which is uh, my my alma mater. How did the Carnegie Mellon connection come about?
1: Sharon Dilworth, it seems to me, was buying fiction, editing fiction for Carnegie Mellon, and her story was that she asked Charles Baxter who he could recommend for. Following up with you know story collections and evidently he suggested that she get in touch with me, and she did. And I had a story collection, and and, and Carnegie Mellon did it. Uh, I, I had a funny experience with them. The book was supposed to come out in the fall, and it didn't. It was delayed, really delayed until the spring. At which point they had me out for a party, and you know I was thrilled to go out and do a reading. I thought all my relatives from Painter Town would come. <laughs> fun. But anyway, so so I was in the offices of uh, the, the press and somebody in the office said, do you know why your book was delayed? And I said, I really don't have any idea. She pulled out a cover, the first cover for the book. It was bizarre. I still have a copy of it. It was, and it was all done. You know, the, the uh, back stuff, the blurbs, but the front photograph, was four naked women or people. I think there were some men there (laughs) standing on a fence. Four naked people on a fence. (laughs) Had nothing to do with my story. (laughs) (laughs) I'll have to send you a photo.
0: Oh, that's so funny.
1: Finally, someone decided that was not going to fly. Uh, And then really quickly, they did a a jacket cover photo that I didn't love. But anyway.
0: And how does that even happen that somebody designs a cover for a book that that has has imagery that has nothing to do with the book's content I mean how does that even happen <laughs>
1: I, I, I don't know I never I never followed that up I think I was just so astonished and then you know and then you go off to a reading in a party and the subject never came up I I should ask because I still do have that original cover.
0: <laughs> There's probably a really great story behind that cover. You know, you should find out. <laughs> you just mentioned Painter Town. Mm-hmm. Your name is Painter. Is there really a town in Pennsylvania called Painter Town? And well, did
1: there was when I was growing up. I grew up East the mm-hmm. Weekend, we went out to either my mother's farm or my father's farm. and uh, But there was some other family named Painter that they named the town after not my family but it was this it wasn't a town it was a side of a hill uh, that had a far house far station that's how you pronounce it far far station
0: yeah
1: and <laughs> a gas station that sold bread and eggs that was painter town wow tiny yeah
0: so you come that's from farm cool. people was what was
1: know, stories? Yeah. But,
0: uh, yeah what, what was that like growing up? I mean, you've come far from the farm, obviously, but, but that must have been quite an experience growing up in, in that environment. What was that like?
1: I said a, a lot of, of stories there. It was it was fascinating because my father's family had 11 children, two stepchildren. So that's 13. And then I had tons of cousins. And my mother's family had four in the family and again tons of cousins. So it was it was a really, really rich childhood in mm. terms of relatives and and outhouses and <laughs> there's bread being baked every day. Wow that are mysterious. So it, it's in a lot of my fiction.
0: Did many of like your cousins end up with educations, you know, college educations and uh-huh. move uh-huh. on to other kinds of lives or did a lot of them stay where they where they were and continue the traditions
1: a lot of them are still there Mm. Uh, and their children probably went off to to get a college education but my parents they had eighth grade educations i was the first one in the family to graduate from high school never mind college Mm. so uh,
0: so you were you were an outlier from the very start (laughs) yes there's so many things that I want to talk about, and I, we only have an hour, so let's. I'm going to go on to the the next thing. Uh, there was an a, an interview with Steve Yarbrough uh, in Fiction Writers Review, and he's speaking about your stories, particularly your your earlier long form stories. Uh, and he here's a quote: "They were elegant and polished. Her control of tone was impeccable, and even in stories that exhibited a high degree of ironic detachment." she could make you ache for her characters. Mm. I could not agree more with that. And then, you know, he goes on in the interview uh, to talk with you about your Flash career, which, you know, is something that you're kind of more established these days as a Flash fiction writer and teacher than uh, as someone who works in the longer form. So so let's talk a little bit about that Your and your evolution from the longer form to Flash, where and how did that take place?
1: Uh boy, I, you know, it's another fork in the road that I mm. hadn't actually considered, but I was on a panel with James Thomas years ago. Uh I was living in Boston at the time, flew back to Chicago to be on this panel. We were giving awards out for something. And um <clears throat> when I was flying back to Boston, I was in the airport. James Thomas was in the airport. We were in the bar. We had a drink and he said, I'm, I'm doing a book I'm going to call Flash Fiction. It's going to be really short stories. Why don't you write a short story for me? So I wrote my probably my first really short Flash Fiction and um, and just fell in love with the form. Oh my cat.
0: Uh, it's all right. We lo- everybody loves animals out there in, in yes. podcast land, so you don't worry. <laughs> so you were just asked basically by another publisher or a writer to try the, the flash form and, and you decided why not? And then you
1: right.
0: and then you liked wow. it, obviously.
1: <laughs> yeah, it it just it it felt great. Yeah. And I was doing a lot of ghostwriting at the time, so and teaching, so I just had a lot on my plate. So it was really wonderful to be able to write a story that was, I think at that time, flash for me was like two pages, three pages, four pages, and then it got down to like a hundred words. But um, hmm. and I think I've been in most of James's, you know, anthologies, the Norton anthology. He is an amazing editor. He deserves just enormous credit.
0: Say so his name. All, say all, say his name again.
1: James Thomas James he's
0: Thomas okay.
1: <laughs> for your, your uh, podcast but he's he's a brilliant editor he's done all those anthologies he really coined the term flash fiction
0: when so, when was that you know there, there's a lot of debate about when that term first came into use when when was that that he used the term flash first uh,
1: it was for the anthology called flash fiction and that was then the first one that I wrote a story for just flash fiction. I'm not even sure when it came out. It's was it
0: the eight? Out. Was it in the 80s? Do you think, or um, was it later than that? Yeah, you know, it's it's funny. It, it, there's kind of this mystique around flash fiction. <laughs> There've been so many different permutations, and you know, now with micro, and uh, it's really interesting how it's kind of morphed into this whole subset of short fiction with a, a life of its own and. I mean, it's really kind of taken off in a way that surprised a lot of people. I mean, it makes sense, you know, and the argument is always, well, our attention spans have been shortened due to social media and cell phones and, you know, computers and the internet. So it kind of, kind of makes sense that things are going to get shorter and shorter. Right. Uh, but there is an advantage to working in, in that limited space. Do you feel that way? Some Some writers tell me that they feel that there's a real advantage to that.
1: Well, uh, it, you can use time that is small, and it's it's not like I write a, a two hundred fifty word story and and publish it immediately. I might revise that for a month uh, or whatever. But but working within that small framework is is really really great. And there's a book. Let's see, the Field Rose Metal Press Field Guide to Writing Flash Fiction, where Tara Massey has an absolutely brilliant introduction to that whole world. I mean, she goes back to Kafka and um, oh, the, the French writers uh, and, and just pulls it all together. She actually left out, my my second husband had been a uh, fiction editor of Playboy. She left out Playboy's three volumes. That's the only thing
0: she's...
1: <laughs> anyway, it's a brilliant
0: introduction. Wow, your, your husband was the fiction editor of Playboy. That really gets my mind racing, but that'll, we'll save that for another conversation. <laughs> That's wonderful. So, the courses that you're teaching now, they're pretty much all related to Flash, right? The, the, you're, you're doing workshops, you go all over the country teaching those. Um, for me, the, the form, I have a lot more appreciation for it than when I started because, you know, the, the, thing that got me into doing this podcast was my love of the longer form story. Uh, Mm -hmm. And, you know, they're just different things. They're apples and oranges, you know, You, you it's like you can't even compare them they they do different things they have different effects you know they they're written in different ways i think would you say that that's true that the, there's obviously i mean they they're written in different ways because of the brevity of a flash piece but wouldn't you say the process is quite there's like huge differences between that and writing a longer form story
1: oh i i think they're totally different but but oddly i know within the first paragraph if the story is going to be Two hundred and fifty words, three pages or seventeen pages. I don't, I don't know why. Mm. A way that language tells me how long it needs to tell the story. Hmm. I just
0: so I you know, know. Wow, I, that's that's the first time I'm hearing anything like that. I, I, you know, I, I hear recurring yeah. things, you know, from writer to writer that you know it makes sense that some of the experiences even though they're not communicating about them they're they're having similar experiences but that's <clears throat> something that I have not heard before and that's really interesting so you know pretty soon into the writing how long that story is going to be even if you start out with the intention of writing like a flash piece it might turn into something else
1: it it could but but again I never know how a story is going to end only once in my life have I known and um Yeah. As a matter of fact, my husband wrote a book called The Technique in Fiction, which is absolutely brilliant. When I was teaching high school, I taught that book called Technique in Fiction by Roby McCauley. And um, one of the things it said is, you always have to know the ending of a story before you write it. Otherwise, how will you know when you get there? So anyway, uh, make a long story short, I had three children, got a divorce, met my husband. And we got married, and you know, usually there are things like uh, you tell me your secrets and I'll tell you mine. Often it's who you've slept with, right? But anyway, <laughs> <because> <laughs> I had to tell my husband that I always wrote fiction and never knew where I was going. I was so not ashamed of it, but I thought you know he wouldn't understand. But he loved my stories. Uh, it's just that he thought you had to know where you were going. And I knew I never knew where I
0: was going. It's so interesting to hear you say that because most of the writers that I've been talking to on this podcast, they tell me they don't know where the story is going. You know, they're working from an impulse, from an image, from, uh, you know, uh, an idea, you know, something that generates this compulsion in them. And and they really don't know where it's going to take them. So it's so interesting to hear that there could be such a binary way of seeing things. Uh, and you you know you think about the different forms like a novel you it makes sense that you would I I think with a novel you'd have to know how the story ends right I mean novels can't be written in the same organic fashion that the shorter forms can because they they require a, a structure a scaffolding you know there's architecture to a to a novel because it's so huge but to me that seems to be like the For a writer that would be the joy of of the short story is that you know you can kind of let it evolve on its on its own terms i want to just talk about there's a much quoted paragraph about plot that i'm going to just read if you don't mind that you wrote forget plot plot sits like a boulder on your flash story Instead, think unstable situation and notice that an unstable situation has a past and a future. Also, forget conflict. It too is a dead weight. Instead, think tension, anticipation, apprehension. Then let your story begin. Wow. Yeah <laughs> that that is like people i think have that uh, embroidered and needlepoint uh, you know on their walls a lot of writers i know <laughs> look to that you know and and live by that so just it, just it, talk about plot because it's one of those points of debate for you know a lot of writers i think you know the importance of plot uh
1: boy i <clears throat> i just i really do think it's it's like a boulder on a story mm. It's a big thing you know, and there's the Aristotelian mountain, um, people talking about plot. But um, I, I really prefer, you know, unstable situation. And by the way, I had to come up with that paragraph for Karen Schauber. I don't know how you pronounce her last name for uh, Vancouver flash fiction. She wanted a short writing tip and I was glad I could really condense it. But um, yeah, plot, plot just implies too much. Whereas on stable situation, all you need is a tiny little bit of instability and instability, uh, the past is built in, the future is ahead. And uh, and I just think it's, it's something that you can move forward with. And uh, it j- just like conflict almost always seems to be like it's conflict with another person. Parent, a couple having problems, uh, you know. Anyway, and whereas if you just think about tension, then you it can be an internal tension. You know, so much of of really great fiction is an internal argument with the self, and and then it plays out with the people in one's life. But but the internal tension, apprehension. Anticipation, they're internal and then you you know when they're focused on the outside world, then you're going to have conflict, but only after you have tension.
0: The unstable situation. I, I love that. And and that is something that I find over and over in your stories. Um, and it creates this sense of foreboding (laughs) is so often that there's like a mystery to this tension you know in in many of your stories where you set it up this is actually a good lead into talking about some of your stories marriage is always uh not always but it it is often a key point of expression in your stories (laughs) and married life and, you know, some characters are widows and widowers, and they've experienced the loss of a spouse. In other cases, their marriages have failed and they're divorced. Uh, and in other cases, they're married, but there's some something really n- not right at the center of, of the ma- these marriages. You know, there's something something off, something missing. I'll just mention two of them. Doors and brochures in fabrications. Those two stories... The husbands are the central characters in the stories. The stories are written from their point of view, but they're in marriages where their relationships with their wives are very unstable for you know in some ways. It's hard to put your finger on and why they're unstable, but and these are not like young marriages. These are people who've been married for a while. And then you, you've set things up so that these husbands may or may not meet with an end <laughs> that could or, or could not have been at the hands of their wives. you know. <laughs> so there's like, real. The, I love the mystery in these stories um, and that they relate to each other. Uh, they speak to each other in a particular way. Can, can you just talk about those two stories? Were they more recent stories that you had written?
1: No, I wouldn't say they're recent stories, but, but <clears throat> when I, when I write about marriages, often things are, slightly autobiographical not totally but slightly and i wrote in a way so many stories from a wife's point of view that i started to feel sorry for my husband <laughs> i wrote a story from his point of view but the two stories you mentioned i don't know where they came from they are they are gifts from the gods mm. to to use male points the male point of view in both stories and the men are the villains in the stories. Mm. Um, yeah, and they don't come to a happy end. <laughs> you're right. You're right. But, um, uh, they were strange stories for me. I hope to write more of those.
0: Do, do you feel like you're processing some of the frustrations of your own married experience? <laughs>
1: I don't like to think about it too much.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's best not to to analyze. <laughs>
1: where do things come from like i i just you know came up with an idea first line of uh from the point of view of a baby babysitter that just says i know the twins i babysit for don't like each other (laughs) where is that going And, and it's the babysitter's story so uh i i haven't even done a second line for that but um yeah yeah
0: do you often find that that you'll have like a first sentence that will just kind of pop into your mind and and then that will kind of the story will emanate from that?
1: Right, yeah. Yeah, mm. a first sentence and and often it's uh it's situational. You know, there's there's an unstable situation
0: mm. at work. Yeah, unstable situations. I uh Hitchhikers is I love that story. And Blood Red Moon, you oh. know, it's another one uh You have proven that you know that is the that is essential in good fiction because it's in all of your stories pretty much the unstable situation and uh hitchhikers is just wow i i that story i see that as a film you know i I think that would make you know that could easily be adapted into an amazing movie uh those characters are, are really something and again there's there's a widow in that story And the character in Blood Red Moon, the the widower in that, he's such a fascinating character. He's like an ex-military guy who has now, he has a small grandchild who he adores and is very protective of. And he's not happy with the way his son-in-law seems very cavalier about giving this child experiences that put the child in physical danger. (laughs) And that's where the conflict arises in that story. And, you know, atmosphere, there's so much atmosphere in your stories you know, the title Blood Red Moon, it comes from the family wanting to experience this blood red moon from the vantage of their beautiful property where they live in the country. And it's it's a very meaningful experience for all of them, obviously. And the experience of that moon and watching it together is the thing that kind of holds this family tenuously together that's such a complex story just if you wouldn't mind just telling us a little bit about what went into the making of that story oh i'm sorry
1: (laughs) that might be a little too autobiographical to uh, okay deconstruct but i've only seen a blood red moon once if Mm. there's any time you have a chance to see it Mm. it's a most astonishing sight yeah Mm.
0: all right so now we know that that you take a great deal from your personal experience but you you know you transform it into something new and unique and and it's it's art these this is not about you it's about it's about the world and human experiences i want to talk about the next time i meet buddy rich that's an amazing story and there's things about that story that i i just have so many questions about The first question I have has to do with the amount of detail that you brought to that story in terms of what it is like or must be like to be a drummer, a jazz drummer in a jazz combo. It's like you lived that life. How did you, did you research that? Were you a drummer in it earlier in your life? (laughs) I, I do
1: love jazz. That story started when uh, I was up in my family's. We had a teeny weeny little cottage up in Lake Erie and it, a really rocky beach. and the kids and I, three kids and I had raked our section of the beach and and that was ours, like you know, I, maybe 12 by 12, and put a blanket down and we went in the water, we came back out and there was this young man on our blanket sitting there. And I didn't kick him off the blanket, but I let him know that this was our space. And you know, he's in a bathing suit. He's a—he told me he was a drummer, and he wanted to be famous. And he met Buddy Rich, he said. And and he told me. And then when he met Buddy Rich, he just was so stupid. But he said the next time I meet Buddy Rich, anyways, uh-huh. we got talking a lot, and he gave the kids and me a drumming demonstration. He just lived up. His parents had a motel, so there we were. You know he's in a bathing suit, drumming, so I got to see the physicality of it really up close <laughs> close and personal <laughs> and i just, I love that idea of the next time I meet buddy rich
2: hmm. so
1: uh i I wrote a draft of his story and um and then I was living in uh Let's see. Where was I at the time? Chicago at the time. Buddy Rich was playing somewhere. So a friend of mine went down to meet Buddy Rich. We thought, yeah. and um, I said I figured out who his manager was or someone. And I, you know, I said I'd like to meet. I'd like to meet Buddy Rich. I was like a, I wasn't, you know, ancient, but I was not the usual age of Buddy Rich's girlfriends. Anyway, <laughs> the guy said to me, "Oh, give me a break." You know, <laughs> And I had a copy of the story. So anyway, meantime, I'm sitting there probably in the second or third row. And as the end of the set happened, Buddy Rich must have been drumming with three sticks because he threw one to me and I caught it. And uh, the ma- his manager came over, I think his name was Steve Peck, and said, Buddy Rich will see you in halftime. <laughs> so uh, I went down and uh, the kid I'd met in the beach said, Oh, if you ever get to meet Buddy Rich, thinking I never would, huh. said, ask to see his hands. Hmm. They will have really, really thick calluses. So I asked Buddy Rich to see his hands. They were like baby hands. you know. And I, I told him about this kid saying about calluses. And Buddy Rich said, if the pressure is right, the sticks don't rub. And I, I put that in my story. Yeah, I love it. I love that. Bill Beitler, who's a great jazz critic, and he, goes, he does reviews of jazz in Boston and often takes me along. I take photographs of him with Jason Moran and Roy Haynes I met, um, the drummer Roy Haynes, and uh, I asked to see his hands, again, smooth like nice. baby's hands. So, and then, and then I, uh, Buddy Rich, so I gave him my story He came into town one time and called me and said, I'm going to be in concert. You have to come hear me play. And in in concert for Buddy Rich, he was playing in some high school auditorium west of of Chicago. And I said, you know, I have three kids. I said, I'm going to have to bring a kid. So So he said, bring a kid. So I got there. He had just gotten a new set of drums. I don't know where they were, Zildjian drums. I met his his uh, sound man by then, and Buddy Rich had a candy bar. I took my son, and uh, anyway, we just heard him play. And it was that point that he, uh, I'm sitting then with the man who does his soundboard um, during his concert, and he just started to play, and he didn't stop. I think he did this here and there. He was, he was showing
0: of drums, off for you, probably.
1: And a new set of drums and his musicians in the band just laid down their instruments and turned around and listened to him. And, and his manager said to me, you know, he said, this is a magical night. He's in concert. You know, there's not waitresses going back and forth and a drunk person over there. Saying, yeah. oh. Or, or, um, and he had a new set of drums and I was there oh. to see it. It was, it was a magical night. How and then I, I saw him one or two more times. The last time, um, I, my book had come out by then, and uh, I wish I'd given that the title next time I meet Buddy Rich, but I gave him a copy of uh, of the book, and he actually signed a manuscript of mine. <clears that throat> but I, I hope people don't forget about Buddy Rich. You know, there's a movie called Wipeout, a great book yes. about drumming, and the yes. person that that teacher adores is Buddy Rich. So yeah, it,
0: well, well, know. jazz is one of those forms that will never, you know, there will always be jazz lovers, jazz aficionados, and they'll keep Buddy Rich's memory alive. I mean, he was a celebrity in our day because he he was such a personality. He, he was hilarious, and Johnny Carson had him on as a guest all the time. Remember back in the '60s and the '70s? Like once, uh, once when he was
1: in Johnny Carson, he said, "You know, if I ever need back surgery." All they have to do is operate on me while I'm drumming. You know? And you put
0: you have you put that in the story too. That's in there. I, I love it.
1: He gave them to me. Yeah.
0: Uh, I love that. Now, now, what I'm curious about is what did he think of the Buddy Rich that you created for the story? Because you had to like figure out, okay, how would Buddy Rich? speak in this interaction with this young drummer? Well, what would he say? How would he behave? What would his body language be? And you you did that. And did he have anything to say about how you, you captured him or how he thought you had captured him?
1: You know, I have no sense that he ever read my story.
0: <laughs> Maybe he never did.
1: <laughs> it's possible he never did. He knew who I was because he wanted me to come down to hear him in concert. Mm. When I met him, he was playing on the Cape I think the year before he died, and that's when I gave him my book, um, you know, and he remembered me from it i I don't think he ever ever <laughs> that. yeah
0: well well, that's a shame because, I mean, it's a masterpiece if he didn't, yeah you know, hopefully he did. he he just didn't have anything to say because he was, yeah, you know, he probably was happy with how you depicted him that that's the story that i'm gonna I'm gonna remember about this <laughs> <laughs> and the other thing in that story that I find so compelling is that you really get to the heart of what it means to have a peak experience as an artist. And that's not something that every artist gets to experience. I I don't think, I don't know. I think it's the one thing that most artists are always striving to have. And, you know, I've had it as an actor. I mean, there, there are moments when you just, everything just seems to coalesce in a way that you just feel like this is exactly how it's supposed to be, you know? And I think musicians have that experience and, uh, but, I, you know, I've often wondered, do, do writers have that experience? Because, you know, it's not a performative, it's not a performance art. It's a solitary intellectual thing. But is there something equivalent to that feeling of a peak experience as a writer? You know, where you just feel like you're in the groove, you know, you're in the zone, as the sports people call it.
1: Uh, not, I, I think your use of the word performance is absolutely accurate. That, that being in the theater is a performance, mm-hmm. Buddy Rich on stage with his drums is a performance. Uh, I think for a writer, it's more long-term and maybe what would be the equivalent is is finding the ending. Mm. Because before you can revise the story, the story needs the ending. And I think that is probably the closest that a writer comes. And then I revise an enormous amount. So, um, But I'm always revising usually within that construct that I've done, whether it's a two-page story or a 20-page story. The story is usually there, and the ending almost never changes. So, um, Hmm. yeah, but it's not as definitive as a performance.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's such an abstract thing, and and it seems to be like in in a moment, you know, that you kind of have that feeling, which makes sense, you know, for someone who's doing some kind of a performance. But yeah, for a writer, are there moments when you're writing where you just are so lost in what you're doing that you feel like you're in sort of this creative zone where you're you, you kind of lost the, the boundaries between who you are and what you're doing have become blurry?
1: In a way. I mean, because you're always, you're always floating on the next sentence Mm. creating it and then it takes you to the next sentence and so i I guess i would i would say that that's maybe the closest that it comes to uh to an idea of of performance in a way Mm. and uh, i mean you feel an ending coming and then when it's there uh you know and it's and it's often just a gift from the gods I, I sometimes write stories where the ending is a swer. Mm. Wow.
0: Yes, I yes. I love that about your stories. I I, <laughs> I have definitely noticed that. And I, I love endings like that. But endings are just so important. That that last sentence has to linger in the reader's mind. And you feel like there, sometimes you write a story and you, ha- you don't feel like you've quite gotten the perfect ending to it.
1: I think I'm happy with almost all the endings of my stories. Good. I don't- I don't think I've ever gone back, for example, you know, when I when I do a collection or a new and selected, um, I don't think I've ever changed an ending, not even a sentence. For some reason, I, I I went through a whole bunch of, you know, best of stories, and almost all stories end on one-syllable words, a two-syllable word. I did a story, oh, which one was it? On Elvis, my story called... Her Elvis Presley wedding.
0: Yes, that's the first story in in Fabrications. Yes.
1: And I think I end that with words seriously, seriously, a four-syllable word.
0: And she repeats it. Yes. It kind of sums up this, the protagonist's view of how marriage is kind of a flawed institution. (laughs) And it's just the way she kind of casually, after she's just gotten married in this Elvis chapel, the Elvis chapel by an Elvis impersonator. It would be kind of a spoiler to to give that last line away, but the seriously is a real, it's a kicker. (laughs) It's a great last word to to end that story on. That story, that was so much fun, that story. Actually, I pulled out uh, a quote from that story about the the woman who says that last line in the story who's just gotten married um, and the protagonist has had a crush on, her, obviously, for a long time. And she's he's watching her get married to his friend. She has slept with a, a tattoo artist, <laughs> you know, because she was kind of loose before she got involved with her fiance. And the tattoo artist makes her an offer. He says, uh, I give you half a free tattoo now. And then I'll take the other half out in trade, if you know what I mean. <laughs> how did that, how does a line like that come to you? That That's just hilarious.
1: <laughs> I, I don't want to know.
0: <laughs> I don't want to know. Yes, it, it's best probably not to think too hard about things like that, right?
2: Right away,
0: yeah. Oh, my goodness. This is just, this is so much fun. We're, we're getting close to the end of the hour here. So I wanted to talk about your collaborations because you this is the other thing i find so exciting about what you do you think outside of the box you know you're always thinking about ways to expand and explore and turn what you're doing into another kind of art altogether by collaborating with somebody and you've collaborated with a number of people um the one person i wanted to talk about now is anthony russo who has a YouTube channel, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right, Cronogio? Cronogio?
1: Cronogio.
0: Cronogio, okay, yes. Uh, where he makes, uh, they're basically short animations where uh, flash stories are the text and the script for the animations. And I, you did one for him called God, or he did one for you, or you did one together. <laughs> and you, that was you reading in that, right? He has the author's read. Um,
1: I can't remember whether I read that one or not. I had written a number of stories that then a friend introduced him me to him. And um, and then he he did that story. Anyway, I, I recorded some stories. I, I think that's
0: his voice. It's a woman's voice, and it sounds like you. I, I think it is you. Maybe it was done a while ago. So if I had to say, I would say that that was your voice. It's That story is so powerful. I I have to say, Pam, that that is the most powerful flash story I have ever. And I, I'm hearing it read, you know, in this instance. But the ending, I was not prepared for at all. I mean, the two Julias. It's called God, but... That is, I, I don't even know how to begin to approach, you know, talking about that story because so much is packed into that story. Can you tell us a little bit about writing a story with that kind of power uh, in a flash form?
1: Uh, that story was a gift from the gods. Someone called me on the telephone and said, I just have to tell you right off, blank is dead. And I knew too women by that name and they were both married to a man with the same name wow so finally i had to ask which one and and it was like they both hung in the balance there it could have Mm. been one and then i think the last line is and like god she told me
0: i I was completely unaware that someone could create that kind of impact in that amount of space Mm. I mean to have the wind it literally knocked the wind out of me reading that story. Uh and that I, I can't say I've ever had that experience with the flash story before. I mean, I've I've been wowed and but but to have the wind knocked out of you is that's a lot for a flash story to accomplish. So anyway, kudos to you for that. That and and everybody has to go to that site to see God, of course. Uh but to see the other things that this amazing artist, Anthony Russo has created that this channel, it's it's just astonishing and it's all black and white. It's monochromatic and he he adds music and it's, he just creates these moves with these short films that will just blow your mind. Uh, So, so yeah, I mean, I I love that you are doing things like that. and You've collaborated with filmmakers and what, what are the kind of, not, not yet. Not I, yet, but maybe that's a future kind of collaboration that you can look forward to. I'm sure that you will. I mean, uh, like I said, I as I read Hitchhikers, I thought that's got to be made into a film. That would just, I mean, I I had a cast in my mind with like the A-listers. It was like, <laughs> I, I mean, really, that that would be something.
1: Well, I think I think some film departments should just recognize that these tiny little stories are perfect for mm. making you know, a short film. Stace Budsko, I think I told you about him, uh, wrote a story, How to Set a House on Fire. It's on YouTube. It's a 250-word story, and the film is, I don't know whether you had time to watch that, but it's wonderful.
0: There's just such a bounty of things that you have given me to enrich my life, and I i can't tell you how grateful I am. I, You know, I wanted to have you read. Now, you, you have a couple of micros, uh, that you picked out that you wanted to read letting go is one right letting go
1: I could read letting go or there's one called dog in the night which
0: you you choose whichever one you you would like to read you 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 pick it
1: you know what why don't I do dog in the night
0: <laughs> okay all right
1: that's a, that's a story that the last line was a gift from the gods and it's a swerve ending okay, okay. let's hear it. <laughs> Um, Dog in the Night. In every story's evening and every novel's night, there is only one bark by one dog alone in the night. Tell me, where is this dog that barks in the night? The dog that races from story to story, lopes from novel to novel, streaks into flash. The dog whose bark never disrupts a family argument, foils a break-in, halts a drug deal, and never prevents a murder. And why? Why does the dog bark only once? This sad and sorry once makes it impossible to locate the dog, to race toward the mayhem, to speed to someone's rescue. Surely it's not a tiny, yappy dog that nestles in a Fendi purse welcomed at posh restaurants. Mm -hmm. The dog must be large, larger, its chest a barrel, its throat a tympanic bell, its bark, not a yip, not a howl, able to travel from doghouse to where something dire is afoot, afoot by the light of the moon or stirring on a moonless night. Did I say doghouse? The dog could be tied by a frayed length of rope to a tree or abandoned on the side of the road. Maybe the dog is in trouble. Where are the other dogs? There is never an answering bark, a howl, a snarl of outrage, no lassie to the rescue. I worry about that dog. I
0: worry about us. Wow! Oh my goodness! Yeah, that last line, you
1: know.
0: It's... Thank you. That's amazing. And yeah, and that dog's bark in the dis—you know—that there's something, there's a power in that and a mystery, and it shows up in so many things, right? Stories, yeah. movies. I mean, it—that bark <laughs> in the distance. Right,
1: right. Yeah, it's in almost uh, almost every novel in so many stories. I don't know why,
0: but... It's saying something. It's saying something, you know, it's, it's commenting on the action in a way that, you know, can be interpreted in a lot of different ways, uh, as, you know, that story kind of points out. That's remarkable. Thank you so much for reading that. That was beautiful. Uh, well, yes, I think this is about where we have to bring this to a close, which breaks my heart. Pam, I'm having so much fun. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to bring your bountiful gifts to the podcast. We appreciate it so much.
1: Well, thank you. It's my pleasure. It's kind of fun revisiting my past (laughs) (laughs) and knowing about that babysitter who thinks the twins don't like each other you know, yeah my next story
0: thank you yeah well you know we know that there's more there's a lot more that we have to look forward to from you so that that's the other upside to all of this is like you know we're we're going to be reading more of your stuff i know uh, in the not too distant future so thank you so much and um i hope to see you again and uh, have another conversation soon Good. take care pamela thank you For listeners who may have been waiting for me to talk with Pamela about her book, What If, Writing Exercises for Fiction Writers, I have to apologize. I got so wrapped up in the things that we were discussing that the time ran out before I had the chance to get into that with her. But we are in discussions about possibly bringing her back for a part two episode where uh, we'll get into that in depth. So stay tuned. We'll keep you posted. In the meantime, you can find out more about her work at her website, PamelaPainter.com, where there are links to her stories, information about her flash fiction workshops, and a page devoted exclusively to the writing exercise book, What If? And now we'll move on to the short story, which is Deck, first published in five points, and then in the collection, Ways to Spend the Night. So here it is, Deck, by Pamela Painter. On a skimpy March morning, Cass reluctantly left Boston to check on the Cape House. She dreaded seeing the new deck they'd contracted for last fall, a reminder that life had gone on in the wake of her husband's death in December. Pulling into their driveway too fast, she almost hit the ugly dumpster that squatted there, normally a tight roost for two cars. It was eight maybe nine feet long and at least seven feet tall with rusted vertical ribs. The carpenter wasn't around nor was a final bill tucked inside the unlocked door. After lugging her duffel and two grocery bags into the kitchen, still in her boots, she clumped down the long hallway to the sliding glass doors that opened out onto the deck to check on Eddie's work. There was no deck. There was only a twelve-foot drop to the ground, where sand and wisps of seagrass churned in the wind off the bay. Gray-dimpled snow still edged the foundation, and the scrub pines looked defeated under the overcast sky. The dismantled deck must be in that dumpster. She bowed her head against the cold glass of the sliding doors and cried. That deck had been the center of life here in their cape house. She pictured Bloody Marys on the table between their deck chairs, Sunday papers blowing around their knees, Trevor's tripod leaning against the rail, and seventeen-year-old Ben changing the strings on his guitar, telling them about the Brian Sutton concert he'd gone to that weekend. Surely parts of the deck were still in the dumpster, if only Eddie could return it to its original battered self. Numb with cold, she dragged the aluminum ladder from the garage and hoisted it against the dumpster's edge. She hoped the neighbors wouldn't come out to welcome her back. They were drinks-once-a-summer neighbors who had called her in Boston to offer condolences, but for sure she didn't want to revisit their sympathy from a ladder. She climbed up one rung, two rungs, "'till she rose above the metal lip and could peer inside. "'A white toilet glowed against the grey boards of the old deck. "'Irrationally she made a mental inventory of their bathrooms. "'Of course the toilet wasn't theirs. "'Eddie was redoing someone's bathroom elsewhere. "'She pictured him hauling the toilet here, "'straining to lift it out of his truck bed "'and heaving it in a white arc over the top.' When Eddie didn't answer his cell, she left no message. He'd see that she had called. She built a fire in the wood stove, put groceries away, and yanked sheets off the furniture. After changing into a nightgown, she dragged a chair in front of the stove and watched the logs sputter and shift. So here she was, without Trevor. She'd been alone when she bought this house because Trevor, after several trips, had given up but told her she should keep looking. It was a treehouse, sort of, with three floors of oddly-shaped rooms and decks. The real estate agent said a loony professor had hired MIT grad students, protégés of architect Maurice Smith, to build it according to his concept of an inside-out house. The outdoor spaces, an extension of the inside design. That day she'd made an offer on the house, sight unseen by Trevor. Then she'd quickly sketched the three floors, something her students at the architectural school couldn't do worth a damn, though they could create impressive digital renderings. Our Cape House, she said, rolling out her drawings on Trevor's Boston desk. He'd marveled at her find. All those windows? Seven different roof lines? He was such a believer. On a sweltering afternoon in August, Eddie had knocked on their door and asked if they had any projects he could do. He'd built their outdoor shower earlier that summer, so they knew his work. When Trevor asked what he had in mind, Eddie said, well, maybe build your wife here a studio or a larger main deck. Cass didn't want a studio, but a larger deck was something they had considered. After hearing Eddie's sorry assessment of the Cape economy, his needy crew, his kids without shoes, here he had the grace to grin, they had agreed on a new deck. Ten minutes later, they stood on the old deck, sipping Coronas, as Eddie drew a diagram in the air with the neck of his bottle. Add at least ten more feet in these two directions. Get more furniture? A bigger grill? He pointed at their old Weber. "'Change to gas!' "'When his enthusiastic voice drew Ben out of his room, "'Eddie greeted him, saying, "'And for sure you'll need safer railings "'when that son of yours has kids.' "'Ben snorted, and Trevor and Cass nodded their agreement, "'anticipating future birthdays, anniversaries, graduations, "'an inflatable plastic swimming pool for Ben's toddlers. "'I'll start the minute you move back to Boston.' "'Take just under a month,' Eddie said. He left happy, with a sizable check in his pocket. "'He still has a mullet,' Ben observed that evening, with the deadly fashion sense of a high school senior. His own hair was shaggy above freckles and Trevor's deep-set discerning eyes. "'Mullet is a word I hope to forget,' Trevor had said. Three months later,' Ben elbowed Trevor's heart monitor aside to stand closer to his hospital bed, his fingers flicking the guitar pick he was never without. The neighbors called to say someone's been over at the house, Ben said. Eddie, maybe? Cass admired Ben's attempt to keep his father tethered to the world a little longer. A brief light glimmered in Trevor's eyes. About time he got started, he said. Then, he said, he hoped the party after the memorial service would take place on the new deck. When Ben objected to the word party, Trevor assured him that there always was one. No gooey casseroles on that new deck. Only good food and better wine. Ben, his voice breaking, said, Can we have beer? Craft beer? That morning... The doctor had suggested that Cass arrange hospice care. No need to say the end was near. Ben said goodbye and reluctantly left for school. Trevor weakly waved. Cass carried out the luncheon tray whose servings of food Trevor had merely spread around. What are you doing? he said, his voice hoarse. Draw something, he would told her looking around, waving weakly at all the gadgets surrounding his bed, pointing to his feet, to the bouquet of tulips from the Lamsons. Remember our discovery about the hibiscus flower on our visit to the Lamsons? He said. Puerto Vallarta, five years ago. Your new camera. When she lifted his cool hand, he turned his own palm down, his spread fingers covering hers. Do you remember my first time-lapse photo? One day he had set up her tripod and trained the camera's eye, calibrated to take a photograph at forty-second intervals, on a hibiscus flower, a flower their host said only lives for one day. Sure enough, by noon the flower's face was fully open to the sun, its lush scarlet petals spread wide against its green leaves, alive and elegant and proud. Then, to their astonishment, as the afternoon waned, The flower used its last moments of life to slowly gather itself into the perfect cone in which it had begun the day. I feel like that flower, Trevor said, his fingers momentarily strong, his gaze a spark of heat before he closed his eyes. Oh, Cass, I don't have anything left. It is taking all my energy to die. Now, her coat hiding her nightgown, Cass backed her car out past the dumpster and fled back to Boston, her mind unspooling all the firsts without Trevor that lay ahead. It was taking all her energy to live. Lucky you weren't stopped by the cops, Ben said, eyeing her nightgown. Cass told him no deck yet, dropping her duffel inside the kitchen door. And the mullet? Ben asked. He never showed up, Cass said and described the dumpster and the demolished remnants. What the hell? Ben's own sorrow flared and spent itself at random moments, wearing Trevor's old fishing vest after school, learning the intricacies of the intervalometer, playing his guitar in Trevor's study, plaintive minor chords. The next day Cass called Eddie's cell, and when he answered, asked in a strained voice how work was progressing. "'Work's coming along fine,' he said, breathing hard as if he'd been carting boards to the new deck in a snow-squall that had gone unreported in Boston. "'Too bad you can't take a run-down here and see for yourselves.' Hers would have been a tantrum born of grief, so she did not tell Eddie that she'd been to the Cape the day before, that she had seen the toilet in the dumpster, and that clearly the progress he referred to was happening someplace else.' You got carpenter ants, he said, in the south wall. South wall, Cass repeated. Unbidden came the memory of the sun setting as they drank their nightly martinis. And that big pine tree that grew so close to the old stairs, he said. It's got to go, or we build a deck around it. It's healthy. I can do that easy. Impatiently, she rose to pace her kitchen. How could she think about building around something even a pine tree's ornately ugly branches, when each day she had to build around Trevor's absence to decide how to live in the space he'd left behind in their two houses, in her mind and heart. Fine. Do it. She told him she'd be moving to the Cape the first week in May and guests would be there later in the month. She didn't add that the guests were Trevor's parents coming for the memorial service, I'll be gone way before then, he said, way before then. Good, she said. The dumpster never came up. In April, the dumpster was still there. The toilet had been joined by a white porcelain sink. Tell Trevor Ants got into the east wall, too, Eddie said. So I did that wall. They were standing in the kitchen, looking out the sliding glass doors to where the deck should have been. Earlier that day she'd placed two chairs in front of the doors as a reminder of the sheer drop immediately outside. It was time to tell him, so she described the surprise diagnosis of Trevor's illness, the trajectory of its rapid descent, and then his death. Shocked and stricken, Eddie sank into one of the chairs as if she'd placed them there for this occasion. It felt impolite not to take the second chair. She could see him thinking that he and Trevor were roughly the same age. He began rubbing the back of his neck. We all just never know, he lamented, and went on to say that Trevor had been a good, good man. His eyes were shiny, his nose red. She couldn't imagine them crying together. In desperation, she said, New haircut? Eddie's gaze took in her short, tangled curls, and then once again his hand moved to his neck where the soft fringe used to be. Oh, yeah. Surprised I don't miss it. My my wife—my ex-wife, that is— said I always petted it as if it were a kitten just before I stepped up to bat. Hyannis Softball League, he said. Alarmed, she imagined spring baseball practice, league games— strident coaches making imperative demands on his time. Noting her alarm, he said, Ken's back from Florida next week and the lumber order is due in at the yard about then. He'd clearly forgotten telling her the lumber had come in last month. What would Trevor have said? He'd have been amused but said nothing. So she said nothing now. Eddie was still thinking about Trevor. Must be hard losing your husband early like that. So fast. Young, too. His self-conscious sympathy, it turned out, was prelude to how hard it was for him to see his ex-wife around town with her new guy. They come to the games. Maybe gone is better. As if required to do so, she tried to picture Trevor squiring around a new woman. It wasn't useful, and Eddie saw that immediately. Maybe not, he said. Just different. Cass left to attend a conference in Seattle. Ben was working on his eulogy with dogged dedication, sending Cass his thoughts in daily texts. Trevor's college roommate had offered to officiate at the service. Cass didn't know whether to dread or welcome all the anecdotes that people would tell about Trevor, how Trevor always did the unexpected. If he'd had to deal with her death and the missing deck... He'd probably have dragged their friends out to the empty spot and reported that when Cass died, she had taken the deck with her. She stopped overnight in Boston to retrieve clothes, books, files. It was now May, and Ben had been down to the Cape with friends. Cass was hoping for good news. "'How does the new deck look?' "'Use your imagination,' Ben said. "'Then never mind, you'll see.' and he refused to say more. Cass drove through a nor'easter, the rain coming down in sheets, her shoulders tense with apprehension. Once more she had to steer past the dumpster's rusty bulk. Automatically she hit the remote to open the garage door and almost drove into a gleaming table saw surrounded by stacks of lumber. But not lumber for her deck, more like flooring for a fancy kitchen. Sawdust blew around in tiny whirls, The off-on switch was a cautionary red. Jesus Christ! Eddie had turned her garage into his workroom. She ought to charge him rent. He probably took afternoon naps in the house. Once inside, she pulled the wicker chairs away from the sliding doors and opened them wide to the sheer drop below. Rain doused the pines as her second martini conjured up what surely would have been Trevor's incredulous delight at Eddie's nerve she imagined Trevor saying with real admiration, We'll hold his table saw hostage so he has to come back. Oh, how she missed his way of being in the world. The next morning, when she heard the whine of the table saw, she rushed outside, clutching her bathrobe tightly around her. I told you I have a goddamn deadline, she yelled. Eddie's face was tanned from working in the sun on someone else's roof or deck. He nodded silently, but he didn't raise his eyes from the board he was cutting. A board actually meant for her deck. Ken was sorting nails and also didn't meet her eyes. The deck has to be done in the next two weeks, and that dumpster she couldn't finish. He finished for her. We'll be gone! The entire week she couldn't look as he and Ken cut and hauled lumber around to the back of the house, "'and she refused to admire how they wove in and out of the pines. "'A friend dropped by with a borrowed book and asked about the deck's progress. Cass's peripheral vision alerted her to Eddie's presence "'just outside the sliding-glass doors. "'Don't even glance that way,' Cass warned, "'taking her arm and turning her away from the scene. "'I do not want to introduce you. "'I do not want to stand and chat. "'I do not want him to stop work for an instant.' Two days later she returned from errands and a swim in Duck Pond to find the dumpster gone, replaced by a bare, moldy spot. Once curious about its delivery, she was dismayed that she'd missed its departure. The driveway looked enormous, almost cavernous. The garage was empty of table saw and tools. The deck was done. It stood nine feet above the carpet of pine needles, and its floor of gray boards stretched twenty by thirty feet across. Three sides of the house gave it shelter and shape, and the railings were safe even as their design rendered them almost invisible. She was walking the perimeter in amazement when Eddie appeared on the path below and climbed the stairs to join her, saying he'd dropped by to see what she thought A six-pack from a local brewery dangled from his left hand. The new deck had been built for late afternoon drinks with Trevor, but it would be cold beer with Eddie instead. They hauled chairs from the garage as Eddie narrated the story of demolishing the deck, finding the carpenter ants, juggling the surprising amount of other work that had come his way, two kitchens in Truro, a roof in P-Town, "'But we got it done,' he said, raising his glass to hers in a toast. "'I'll be at the memorial service. "'Trevor was a good man, good to me, and he'll be missed.' "'When Eddie left, she kicked off her shoes "'and tucked her skirt above her knees to feel the evening breeze. "'Ben would be arriving soon, "'and a week later the guests for the memorial service. "'Trevor's absence would be the most felt presence of all.' and it would never leave her. They had loved this house with its ragged view of the bay and had marveled at how their landscape never changed with the advent of summer or the approach of fall. The scrub pines always loomed in the salty mist from the bay's cool waters, though soon their pollen would dust everything a pale and silken yellow. Thank you, Pamela, for allowing us to read that moving story. Well, that's the end of the episode. Thank you for listening. Please join us next week when our guest author will be Emily Mieringoff. The music you hear at the beginning of each episode is by C.S. Fuqua, and the closing music is by Matt Hawkins. You can find out more about their music from a link on our homepage at shortstorytoday.com. You've been listening to Short Story Today, where we celebrate short stories and the authors who write them.
2: Across the bridges, stories are-